This episode of the Ed Curation Podcast is sponsored by the Institute for Humane Education, which is committed to educating a generation of solutionaries, students and change makers able to think systemically and act compassionately to solve the challenges of our time. IHE offers award-winning free resources for educators, online professional development, and online graduate programs with Antioch University. Learn more by visiting edcuration.com and searching the Institute for Humane Education or using the links in the episode notes. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional movements, resources, tools, and practices that are reshaping learning. Hi, everyone. This is Christy. Today's interview was arranged by Divine Intervention or Serendipity, depending on your perspective. Andra Yagoyan and I connected a few years ago, and neither of us can remember exactly how or why, but we ran into each other again recently at the South by Southwest Conference, and I remembered that she is someone that our audience absolutely needs to meet. Andra Yagoyan is currently the Environmental Literacy and Sustainability Coordinator at the San Mateo County Office of Education in California. Her accomplishments, publications, and initiatives could honestly fill an episode all by themselves, but I know she'd rather have you hear about her passion, which centers around personal and organizational learning and facilitating the journey for others in becoming changemakers for a sustainable future. Andra's work is changing the world, starting in California and moving outward. I asked her to share how it all began. When I was getting my teaching credential, it was heavily embedded with social justice, but I was dating somebody who was super into sustainability. And so for me, like my formative time of like when I was learning to become a teacher was all about those two things. And the the teaching I was doing was social studies in English. So that was like through a humanities lens. Andra's very first full-time teaching jobs were in the Netherlands, in the American School of The Hague and the International School of The Hague. You've probably heard of The Hague because it's the location of the International War Crimes Tribunal. For reference, it's about 30 or 40 minutes south of Amsterdam. And so that was also just like really formative for my teaching practice of like being thrown into like a totally different system, no set curriculum. Like they were just like, teach whatever you want, as long as it's social studies and English. And I was like, uh, that's an incredible opportunity. And so I really just started my teaching practice with um, teaching social studies and English with an environmental and social justice lens and had complete like freedom to do basically what I wanted. I had like you know, supported kids to become like running their own environmental nonprofit. We were doing protests in The Hague. After four years in the Netherlands, Andra returned to the United States. And while she did not stay with her sustainability-focused boyfriend, she did adopt his passion and completed her master's degree with the goal of figuring out how to take the environmental, sustainability, and social justice work she had done in her classroom and scale it for a whole school and a whole district or county and eventually a whole state and perhaps even further. Out of graduate school, she started out as the Director of Sustainability at Bishop O'Dowd High School in East Oakland, one of only two such positions in the entire country. That's where I really learned what it means to do like whole systems change and how to do it like in the campus and then in the curriculum and in the community and culture. And so from that, when San Mateo County was looking to do a 
to, to ha- be launched the first countywide initiative for this work, um, my name came up because there was only so many of us. So I basically decided I wanted to take what we did at the site level and use that as the vision for what every school in San Mateo County could do. When you were figuring out how to be a director of sustainability, there really wasn't a template. Am I right? Yeah, there was no template. I mean, so I like read every book that the Center for Eco Literacy had. I like connected with as many um, directors of sustainability and sustainability coordinators that I could in higher education because that that is where there was a, a template for this. Okay. Um, and and that was basically it. So I talked to all these different people. I kind of figured out well, what are they doing in higher ed? What's applicable at the K twelve level? Um, and then I built a model out the the four C's. Um, sustainability framework and said, I think this is how it can be done. And that's what I shared in my second interview at O'Dowd. And they were like, yeah, let's do this together. And so we did it. (laughs) Okay. So I know that there are tons of people listening. Maybe everybody listening is wondering what, what does a director of sustainability do? So in both contexts, what it means to be a director of sustainability or a sustainability coordinator or an environmental literacy coordinator um, in education, basically what it means is that you're leading a high impact change initiative that is meant to touch every facet of operations and daily life at a school. So really thinking about making change at the campus, like facilities and buildings and grounds level, um, really making an impact in the curriculum. So changing the content that is taught, um, supporting a change in pedagogy so that um, you, you're taking kids from knowledge to action with solutionary teaching and learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also in the community and culture so that if somebody was to step onto the school's campus, they would see symbols and practices happening daily that say that this school values sustainability and this school values, you know, puts the planet, you know, in not first, but is doing people, planet and, uh, and economic prosperity together. Okay. And did you go in that order? Facility, curriculum, community? That's a good question. When I looked back at like the four years I spent at O'Dowd and the five years that I've spent now at the county level, what I what I recognize is that I was I'm doing whole systems change. And so we're really not looking at doing one subsystem at a time, like a subsystem being campus or a subsystem being curriculum or subsystem as community culture, but pushing on leverage points in all of those subsystems at once. And so I can explain that a little bit further. Like this is the example I always use. A teacher could teach all day long about recycling and compost and the waste system. But if there's not a a recycling and compost bin in the classroom or in the school, it literally does not matter what you're saying because it's in one ear and out the other because nobody's doing it in their practice. And so I always say like, if you only focus on one subsystem, your other subsystems will fail. And so will that subsystem. And so you really have to do them together which to some people are like, that's too hard. It's overwhelming, right? And it is, it's, it's really complex, but it's it's how whole systems and par- it's how paradigm shifts happen, right? You can't just go right. one little piece at a time. You can still go a little bit incremental, but you're going to get at transformational change. And when you're thinking about doing this on a countywide or a district-wide level, do you also have to start at the lower grades and move up? Because it's a little bit hard to start implementing this in high school. If you if they didn't, if kids didn't have it and this was not their model in middle school or elementary. 
Yeah, that's a great question. I think any grade level is a good entry point. And I think you can approach all of them at the same time, or you can go one grade band level at a time, right? I actually think secondary education is a great starting point because the students know about it, right? So the students know what climate change is. The students know that there's environmental problems. They hear about it. They've seen it on the news. They've seen it in social media. They know who Greta Thunberg is. So you have a captive audience that is like really wanting people to talk about it. And so when teachers do, I've never heard a teacher be like, oh, my kids were so bored in that environmental lesson. Yeah, they're on fire. Exactly. But you can also start in elementary school, right? Because they, they don't know any difference. So like, if you just start in with like, at our school, we compost, they're not going to be like, but why? And then I would say like, as climate change, as the impacts of climate change are becoming increasingly felt in all different regions across the world, like kid, you have to talk to kids about it. You know, if you're living in the West coast, it's wildfires and drought and high heat. If you're living, you know, on the East coast, it's like sea level rise and flooding happening. Um, and it's massive hurricanes and storms. If you're in the middle, you know, it's, it's all of the above. So every child is experiencing climate change and therefore you need to be talking about it. And Mm -hmm. kids welcome that. They want to know the context. They want to better understand their context. They do. I'm just thinking logistically in high school, where would the curriculum piece fit? I mean, there is environmental science courses, but not, you know, it's a a small percentage of students who are actually in that class. So yes, there's precedent for like an AP, AP environmental science exists. Most states, like 33 states at least, um, are have adopted NGSS, the, the science standards. Mm-hmm. So um, it's required in high school science to be teaching about climate change in every single science discipline. So okay. all of them have it embedded. Um, in California, we have the environmental principles and concepts, which are like a set of basically just that principles and concepts that are paired up with all the standards. So they're paired up with science, they're paired up with history, social studies, with health, and now also visual and performing arts and now English and math are are just coming on board. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that you are like, no matter what subject area you are teaching, you are meant to be teaching these environmental principles and concepts. So when I ran into you at South by Southwest, the thing that you were there talking about was the National COVID-19 Outdoor Learning Initiative, along with your other partner organizations. And I would love to have you just tell our listeners what that is and how it came about. Yeah, great. So it's interesting. When I was at Bishop Odad High School, I got the privilege to, um, to support what we called our living laboratory, which was a four-acre garden that had started long before I came there. I really learned the power of outdoor learning, what it looked like to have it embedded in all parts of the kid's day. And and we were doing it in East Oakland, which where you don't really have a lot of access to that, to outdoor learning and nature. Um, And so I I just learned the value of it. So when I came to San Mateo County, I was already in 2017, 18, super excited about outdoor learning and um, getting kids outside and, you know, learning from the outdoors and and really working a lot with Sharon at Green School Yards America, we you know we started talking immediately when I came there about like how could we how could we bring living schoolyards to every school in San Mateo County? Like how can we make that happen? 
Just to throw out a quick teaser, you will be hearing from Sharon Danks, the founder of Green Schoolyards, in our upcoming episode on August 18th, and you won't want to miss it. Sharon and Andra were well into the process of working together to create living schoolyards and outdoor learning spaces in the interest of climate resiliency before the pandemic hit. What was interesting is that when COVID happened, it was like, oh, this is like living schoolyards are not only great for resilience, for climate change and sustainability and for teaching about the environment for kids, but they're also a key resilience piece in a pandemic where it's safer to be outside. So the opportunity to to get that message out more broadly um, to other schools and, and across the country, I, you know, jumped on it. I said, yeah, let's co-found that. I know what it looks like to, to provide technical assistance, to, to support living schoolyards already across a region. So happy to help, you know, figure out how to help other regions really think about this. Yeah. And I can't wait to hear about where the initiative has kind of gone and how it's spread. But before I do that, I want you to talk a little bit more about the outdoor learning in that school with the four acre garden, what did that look like? How was it integrated into the student's day? Yeah, so I'll get, I'm gonna give two examples. I was teaching seventh grade English at a pl- public school in, uh, in Pleasanton. And so it's in the Tri-Valley of uh, the Bay Area. So very hot. Um, and I happened to be, my classroom happened to have like an outdoor space attached to it, which had used to be a garden, but it was just a bunch of dead beds with massive amount of weeds. So I worked with my seventh grade classrooms and we went out there all the time and we basically beautified the area and we had like an edible garden section. And then we had like a tree, like one mass or two massive trees that we did like a little circle around every Monday. We always did an opening circle. Every Friday we did a closing circle and I would, I brought my kids out there every single week. There was not a single week where we didn't do outdoor learning outside, um, or sorry, outdoor learning in the garden space. And much of it was just teaching regular English. It was really about sitting around this tree and doing listening and speaking and reading and writing. Um, and so for me, I learned about what it looks like to teach any subject area outside being that, that particular one being English. When I came to O'Dowd, they had a garden that had been going for 13 years. It was pretty incredible space. But what their concern was, was that it was mostly only being used by the science department. Um, And more specifically, mostly just earth science and AP environmental science with a little bit of biology. And so they really wanted to take that garden and say, how can we get all subject areas out there? And how can we take the culture of this garden space across the whole school? So I, I learned about what it looked like to get all the other departments to buy in to taking their kids outside. So I worked with history social studies teachers to figure out what's the right what's the right uh, grade level to bring out here and we learned it was the ninth graders let's bring the ninth graders out when they're doing this like deep dive on civilizations and in particular the agricultural revolution um and then up through through the decades or up through the centuries so we we did that with the ninth graders then we looked at the english department and we said what's the best grade level and subject area to bring outside and turn out all of them. We did it in 10th grade with, um, of mice and men. We did it with 11th grade with transcendentalism. We did it with 12th grade with descriptive writing. Um, and then it was like, how do we get the religion classes out here? So we figured out like, that's what care for creation. How do we get the arts teachers out here? Oh, well, let's look at like cave art and let's look at some of that. So it was like, just figuring it all out. How do we get the math teachers out there? Turned out we created a human sundial and it was the perfect thing for geometry. We had this, this honors geometry class out there and we were doing this like sundial thing. And I remember a kid was like, 
oh, you can use the Pythagorean theorem? Like they were just like, I had no idea that that was like a usable thing. I'm completely sold on the idea that you can have any subject area out there. You can do it in any weather. Um, it's really just a matter of having the right, the right gear and the right mindset of why you're going out there. Okay. And the initiative provides resources, guidance, and a framework for schools who are wanting to initiate out more outdoor learning. Yeah, absolutely. Did I know that right? Totally. I learned so much from around the country of like how other people were doing this in snow, in like humidity, in rain, in like every weather that you could possibly imagine in the most urban setting to the most rural setting, like people are out there doing this. The resources that have been put together and now basically elevating that vision for everybody is to show that it is possible in every region across our country um, and in every context. And, and there's re- there's a resource for everyone, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's four, basically four partner organizations that mm-hmm. took part in creating the initiative, right? So it was San Mateo County, Ten Strands, um, the Lawrence Hall, and... And then Sharon, and, and Sharon really is the linchpin for all that, right? Green Square, okay. Because I mean, this was already, this is like the main focus of her work. Of what she does, yeah. Exactly. So the the th- uh, the other three of us kind of came on with like different mindsets of what you mm-hmm. can do, you know, um, and, and how to take this to scale. The leaders of the initiative heard from schools and districts who adopted outdoor learning during COVID and wanted to know the practicality of making this a long-term practice. So the team did a weather analysis. So we, we actually analyzed the weather and climate and projections for the next decade based on climate change. And we discovered, like, yeah, you can be outdoors most days. Most days, yeah. And I mean, that's, I, I was saying Colorado, but that's actually true in Colorado too. We have more, we have as many days of sunshine as Miami in yeah. Colorado. So um, the hardest thing for the West is the smoke days. That's it. The wildfire mm-hmm. smoke. Yeah. There's not a way around that really. Yeah. So um, the initiative, it was born out of this need to have a way to provide in-person learning during the pandemic. But there was also this concern about the ways in which the pandemic was amplifying inequities Mm -hmm. within the system. And so I'm curious, did you find the initiative um, effective in addressing and rectifying some of the inequities? And if so, how, how so? How did that work? In San Mateo County, Yes, I would I would say that this this for the schools who are trying to get kids back in the really early days as fast as possible in person, doing it in the outdoors was very welcomed and it was the safest way. And in fact, our our lowest income district was one of the first districts to call us up. They said, "We need to get our we need to get our students back in person now. How do we do that?" And mm-hmm. so, can you come and walk every site with us and figure out the outdoor spaces to do it? The majority of what we were doing in those early days was walking sites and looking at what it, what is already an asset for you in the outdoor spaces. Like, do mm-hmm. you have picnic tables? Do you have benches? Do you have, you know, like, do you have shade? Like, really looking at, like, what are what are you already have? And then what do you need to fill the gaps? Um, and how can you fill that need really quickly? Like, so if you didn't have any seating, like, how can you do that? really quickly with just like mats and tree stumps or, you know, like something cheap that you can move around. Um, and when you do already have the assets out there, how can you better leverage it and move it around to, to, to make this happen? So we did a lot of like 
infrastructure, lots and lots and lots of infrastructure. And then once that was kind of like, okay, we've got the spaces now, we figured out how to do this. It was like, then it was like, well, actually the teachers are a little unsure. <laughs> so then we spent a lot of time working with school districts. I mean, the teachers were unsure for many reasons. Like one was just like, is this safe no matter what to come back? Um, but they were, some of them were like, I don't, I've not taught outside. I don't really know what that feels like. So we worked with a couple different school districts and really figured out what are the biggest concerns. And then we put together like a outdoor learning and play considerations and a professional development program to really help them get on board. And my guess is that the kids loved it. Oh yeah. I mean, I think again, you, I've, I don't think you ever really hear too many kids be like, I don't want to do I don't that. want to be outside. For the most part, kids love being outside. Yeah. Yeah. No matter what age. Imagine it would be, it would be a learning curve for teachers because they're used to having all their technology around yeah. them and their systems. And, you know, they, their classroom is all organized in a way that allows them to implement, you know, deliver learning yeah. in easy ways. So it's a shift. If you're feeling inspired about environmental education, social justice, and sustainability, and wondering about first steps for your classroom, school, or district, Andra has so many resources for you, as does today's sponsor, the Institute for Humane Education. This is Zoe Weil, president of the Institute for Humane Education and author of The World Becomes What We Teach, which has become an Amazon number one bestseller in the philosophy and social aspects of education. We are proud to sponsor this episode of the Ed Curation Podcast. At IHE, we believe that a just, healthy, and peaceful world is possible, and the most powerful way to build such a future is to prepare a generation of solutionaries. Solutionaries are able to see past polarized thinking, look at problems systemically, and use academic skills to collaboratively solve real-world problems in their communities and world. We offer educators free resources to integrate the solutionary framework into classrooms, along with professional development opportunities. We also offer online graduate programs with Antioch University. Find the Institute for Humane Education at edcuration.com or through the links in the episode notes. Back to Andra in San Mateo. So, This spread far beyond San Mateo. So you're mostly talking about San Mateo County, but um, looking at the map on the website of the initiative, it's not only all over the country, but really all over the world. Um, Are you seeing now that that the pandemic is waning, Mm -hmm. that this initiative has created a momentum and equipped schools to really move to the next level in terms of environmental literacy? I can share like what happened through the pandemic and some of it has to do with this initiative and some of it just has to do with climate change. And some of it has to do with also the concept of crisis. People are now much more keyed into the concept of crisis and the threat that it has to to human life and and stability. And so we have a lot more school districts who engaged well beyond outdoor learning but who've engaged and doubled down on the concept of like environmental literacy and climate literacy and climate action plans. So like for you, it could have been like, people could have just said, I'm so overwhelmed just dealing with COVID, forget it, please go away. But they didn't. They said, please come and do more with us. And look, our students are like super engaged with this and they want us to do more. 
Like more board resolutions were passed during this time than ever. More of my districts have sustainability committees and, and are working towards climate action plans. More teachers than ever started doing like environmental literacy during this time period. So I think, like I said, I think there's a lot of factors that contributed to that, but for sure, this has expanded well beyond just basic outdoor learning. Yeah, so that's so encouraging to hear. And just to riff off of that, you talked about this a little bit at, in your session at the conference, but um, in some ways, this the pandemic proved that we are able to face this worldwide threat and respond mm-hmm. to a global threat as a community. Um, I mean, not always 100% effectively. It's not like we've been completely united in it, but you know, we have come out the other side as a as a planet really and while climate climate you know the climate crisis is very different it's much more complex but what did we learn from covid that can inform our response to the climate crisis i think there's a lot of similarities between the two you know just this like need for rapid paradigm shifting change and all that kind of stuff but i think the things that we can take away is that change is possible right absolutely change is possible um but that when you need to do change it really does require like three, you know, three major things. Like it requires a policy shift. It requires a mindset shift and it requires like a behavior shift. So I think like that was very obvious through, through COVID that you needed all three. And when, when you didn't have one of those and there's been, you know, pushback in different regions, things have not gone as well as people would want. Um, and, and that's true for climate as well. When you don't have the policy change working hand in hand with a cultural mindset change, working hand in hand with behavior change, like it's hard to make the paradigm shift happen. So I think that's a big, a big takeaway. The things that are really different with climate from COVID is that like COVID, basically we needed to get vaccines out to everybody with climate. We have to change the way that we currently live our lives. And we also simultaneously have to adapt to the current impacts of climate change. So we're, we're, we're doing two things at once, which I think is a a little bit, like you said, more complex and much harder. Yeah. I'm thinking of educators who may not be at the district level or may not be at a level of leadership where they feel like they're able to um, impact any kind of change in their district. and. I'm just thinking back to your opening story about the work that you were doing in The Hague with your students. And so I think that any teacher at any level can just be really solutions focused Mm -hmm. in their their instruction, including these issues in the classroom, but not in a way that feeds into students' anxiety, which our students are already, you know, so overwhelmed with anxiety. It's a, it's it's kind of the pandemic after the pandemic, I think, um, of anxiety. And we don't want to worsen that. We want to be solutions focused. So can you talk to those teachers who might be listening and saying, well, I don't have a sustainability coordinator or director in my district or in my school, but what can I do to give my students a sense of power and um, enable them to take some action? Yeah, definitely. As a teacher, it is totally okay to just say, I may not be able to change the whole school or the district, but I can certainly make a change in my classroom. I do this across like a, we call it like a continuum, like environmental literacy continuum. Mm -hmm. So talking to teachers about if you want to start this work is just like supplemental, that's a great way to start it. And then I take them through this continuum of saying like, 
You're going to get yourself all the way though to the most spicy end of this continuum where it's knowledge to action project-based learning. But any entry point is a good entry point. And I don't have to dive in at the highest, spiciest level. I can, you know, come in at this kind of like mild, let me test it out and let me see how my kids respond um, and, and, you know, get, get your feet wet in that way. So I really encourage teachers to do that. I want to connect back to something you said, which is like, it can be overwhelming to teach about these topics with kids of any age, um, because it is, you're talking about life and death, and you're talking about that for all species, including humans. Mm -hmm. Um, and that, that feels really heavy. Um, and so we always recommend doing that with like, definitely with trauma informed practices and, um, making sure that the kids are given a chance to share their emotions around it. And then also, um, a chance to move into solutions. So we always talk about like providing the space for emotional reaction time, and then providing the space to talk about solutions and solutions, a solutions oriented mindset so that no kid is left in like this despair and doom and gloom. And at the same time, we say it's not okay to not talk about it. It's mm-hmm. much scarier for a kid to try to navigate this world when people aren't talking about it than t- trying to navigate the world when people are actually talking about it. So, yeah. And I think it's important to let kids know to, and to just discuss the fact that media tends to focus on the worst case scenarios and the most negative aspects of the data versus yeah. the impact that regenerative agriculture can have you know, and, and focus yeah. on those things, but the, the media doesn't tend to focus on those things. So if, yeah. if kids are being exposed to the media, it, it looks grim, you know, our, our situation looks pretty dire and it, and not that it's not dire. Yeah. There is a lot of great progress being made and research being done around effective solutions. Absolutely. There's so much reason to have hope. And I think like that, like as a classroom teacher, that is what's so exciting. Like, I, yeah, I definitely remember having teaching a lesson with students that was like felt really heavy and giving them the chance to, to process it, but then bringing in uh, all these amazing resources, like drawdown project drawdown, um, you know, like uh, there's a thousand examples of local examples of people, you know, making a difference. So bringing those in like immediately shifts the tone and kids are like, Oh, hope possibility. We can do this. Are you connected at all with kiss the ground? Yes. I actually, they feature uh, some place in San Mateo County. We did an episode with them as well. And there, that documentary was one of those that I just thought, why, why is everybody not talking about this, this data, this solution? This organization, right? They've we've we've essentially found the solution to not only stop but reverse climate change. Yeah, the the scientific and technical solutions are out there. It's really this is a social issue. This is a social issue, which is why I always tell teachers it is absolutely critical that English teachers and social studies teachers are teaching about the climate crisis and and helping their students navigate like I said, the emotional impact of it, and then move towards solutions, like, and then work with your, you know, science and your math and your engineering, you know, teaching partners to figure out like how to show those solutions and how to actually give kids hands-on experiences. But the solutions are there. We could make a change in a decade if we want to. It's just a matter of us getting that social will to do it. To do it. So that leads me to my next question, which is, is San Mateo, you guys have been somewhat groundbreaking in a lot of this work. You've created this template. Um, if there are districts out there that are wanting to learn from you and implement the program in those same ways that you have and use your framework, 
Um, can they do that through the resources you've created? I know that you, you've had the Sustainable and Climate Ready Solutions for Admin Fellowship. Mm-hmm. You have the San Mateo Environmental Solutionary Teacher Fellowship. Are those just for educators within San Mateo? I just should say that none of what we are been able to do would have been possible without the California Environmental Literacy Initiative. So that's led by 10 strands. And um, it started off as like the steering committee for the blueprint for environmental literacy, which Karen Cow can talk a lot more about. Another quick teaser, Karen Cow from 10 strands will be talking more about that in an upcoming episode on August 4th. I hope you'll tune in to learn from Karen along with Craig Strang from the Lawrence Hall of Science in Berkeley. In the California Environmental Literacy Initiative, we have all these now innovation hubs. And so I work with a lot of other county offices. There's at least nine of us, I want to say right now, who have all started to invest in a position like mine and an initiative like ours. Um, And then there's like 30 other county offices that are interested. And so a lot of what we've done has now have is that now being replicated in other counties and new innovative ideas that they're doing that I've taken into my work. Um, and so it has already spread across into other places and we are all working in collaboration with each other. But yes, everything that we do in San Mateo County can be taken right now and and and, and moved across wherever you are. It doesn't have to be in California. It can be, can be in any, any place in the world, really. Mm-hmm. And I will say that is how I intentionally designed this. So I learned from my work at Bishop O'Dowd, like at the site level, I, I learned to do a replicable model because all these other Catholic high schools were like, hey, can we do it? And then all the Catholic K-3s were like, hey, can we do it too? Mm-hmm. And so I learned that, oh, I need to make replicable models and so when I came to San Mateo, I used that mindset from the start and, and okay. made sure that every single program and resource that we created was something that could be adapted and customized in a different context. So the resources available on the National COVID-19 Outdoor Learning Initiative can be accessed through that website and they are available to any educator anywhere in the world. Yep. So great. Thank you so much for making all of that available. Um, So one more question, Andra, you said there's so many reasons to have hope and I agree. And I would love for you to share some of those with our listeners in terms of what do you see happening? I've seen what it looks like when an entire region um, is focused around climate action. So I work really closely with our County Office of Sustainability and seeing what they've been able to do at the municipal and county scale is really powerful. So at that policy level, absolutely. I would say there's a lot of hope at that individual behavior change. Like if seeing so many different people make these behavior choices, like in my friend group and in my family group, and you know, in, in colleagues, like lots of people are starting to make those individual shifts. And that means that there's a cultural mindset change going on, right? So I I do feel really hopeful. I also feel really hopeful that systemic change is possible. Like it sometimes doesn't feel like it on a daily basis, but when I really look back and I'm like, oh, you can see it, you can see it through the data, there's evidence to show for it. And now I have all these different change maker stories. I asked Andrew to share one of those changemaker stories, and she directed me to her changemakers page, where you will find so many uplifting stories that you will levitate with hope and happiness. And I've shared the link in the episode notes. So we worked with this group of students who came up through our Youth Climate Ambassadors program. And um, that group of students, once they graduated, they were like, we want to do something more. We want to do something district wide. Um, And they stuck with it. They said we want to pass we, we want to pass an emergency um, a climate emergency declaration with our board and they we'd already helped the youth commissioners in the county do it so they took that and they replicated it and made it in their local context 
they passed that. And then they said, you know, one of the things that we said in our declaration is we want to have a district-wide sustainability committee. And, and they're like, the district's not doing it. And I said, well, you guys could do it. So they decided to do it. And they have met weekly for over a year and a half. And they launched that district committee um, at the beginning of this school year. And they've carried it through the whole year. And they've got board members attending. They've got uh, site administrators, district folks. They've broken it into collective impact um, subcommittees. And they've made change happen. And so to see that, to see kids come through this little knowledge to action program, graduate and say, we want to do more and then do it and like inspire all these adults in the system to me is just like exactly what we want to see happen. And I'm really proud to say that there are adults in that community who listened and said, yeah, we want to do this hand in hand with you. Yeah. And that's, I think that's the important piece is it's not just them. It's not just the next generation who has to do this. The current adults in power have to do it alongside of them. All resources for the National COVID-19 Outdoor Learning Initiative are available to any educator anywhere in the world through the links in the episode notes. You'll also find links for both the administrator and teacher fellowships, the Sustainability and Climate Resiliency Resource Center, which has everything you need. And there are multiple publications from Andra, so much great stuff. And last but definitely not least, we want to remind you that today's episode is sponsored by the Institute for Humane Education. Julie Meltzer, Maine's Curriculum Leader of the Year, tells us that the Institute for Humane Education's solutionary approach deepens learning, engages students, and gives them both agency and optimism as they address the challenges that they care about most. Preparing students to become solutionaries also reconnects teachers with the reason they entered the profession, to make the world a better place. In addition to English, the Institute for Humane Education's resources are also available in Spanish, French, Mandarin, and Arabic. Learn more about the Institute for Humane Education and its resources by simply visiting them at edcuration.com and clicking the Let's Talk button to access free resources and learn more about their professional development opportunities. We hope you found this episode helpful and inspiring. If so, please rate, review, follow, share, and join us again next week on the Ed Curation Podcast, where we're reshaping learning. Thank you.